Again, my name is Austin Thacker. I'm here now as a member of the Pastoral Search Committee. And today is such an exciting day for us. We have all, all of us, not just the committee, we have been praying and waiting. And today is a great day. So I have the privilege now to introduce Dr. Tyler Groff. Um, Tyler is the executive pastor of Ward Presbyterian Church in Northville, Michigan. He has served at Ward Church for more than nine years. He earned his Master of Divinity from Reformed Theological Seminary here in Orlando in 2010. He also earned his Doctor of Ministry from Gordon Conwell, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary in Boston in 2018. Tyler and his wife, Rachel, have been married for 12 years, and they have three children, Emery, who's eight, Lane, who is six, and Caleb, who is three. Rachel and their children are here this morning with Tyler, and they're joined by Rachel's parents, Mark and Judy Mixon. So before Tyler comes up, we're going to have them stand, and let's all just welcome them, if you would. So without further ado, it is my humble honor and privilege to welcome uh, Dr. Tyler Groff. Well, I want to say hi to everyone here. Um, a lot of people here today. It's wonderful to be together this Sunday. And uh, we've had a wonderful time, and it's a privilege for me to open God's Word today with you. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, hopefully uh, that will come sometime uh, in the future. Uh, but my family and I, we've been here over the last couple days, uh, and there's a lot of excitement for us as we have this opportunity to possibly come lead this beautiful church. And so I'm grateful and honored to be here. Uh, I've chosen today to focus our attention this morning on a section of scripture uh, that really came alive to me this past year. Uh, God used this passage and the implications from this section of scripture uh, to speak to my own heart and the beauty of the gospel, the beauty that the gospel has for each and every one of us here today. And at that time in my life, I really needed these words. And so this morning, I hope that God gives you that same uh, encouragement. And so this morning, if you're willing and able, would you stand uh, as I read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and you can follow along uh, as I read. Matthew 5, 17. Uh, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes, whoever relaxes one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, this morning, I take great comfort to let you know this from the very beginning. This sermon that I'm about to preach and to give you will not be the greatest sermon you've ever heard in your life. In fact, I can tell you right now, if you called me to be your next lead pastor in the entire time that I serve you, I will never, ever preach the greatest sermon you've ever heard. Now, hopefully you'll think they are good. Um, at least most Sundays. And, 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 and maybe once a year you might say, now that, that was a great sermon. But I can tell you right now that I will never preach the greatest sermon you've ever heard. And so I, I want to ex- adjust everyone's expectations accordingly this morning. <laughs> and the reason I take great comfort in that is because I know that you've already heard the greatest sermon. You see, the passage on which our sermon is based this morning comes from the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest man who ever lived, Jesus of Nazareth. And in this sermon, Jesus is preaching what's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is teaching the upside-down reality of his words compared to the many other sources in our world. And today is no exception. Today we find ourselves listening in on that hillside as Jesus comes and tells us his thoughts about the purpose of the Bible. We listen in intently to hear what he has to teach us. And he has three declarations we must hear if we are to make sense of this Bible. First, the law we need. Second, the law that won't go away. And third, the law that is fulfilled. The law we need, the law that won't go away, and the law that is fulfilled. First, the law we need. Jesus starts in this section of scripture, verse 17. He he says these words, uh, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus tells us uh, to the contrary of his growing reputation that he's not trying to do away with the Bible, but he tells us it is a law that we need. Now, why do I say that? Well, Jesus uses this word here to think. Uh, And that word in the Greek is namizo, which comes from the word namos, which is the word for law. There is this close connection between our ability to think and make sense of the world and the importance of the law. Without its guidance and direction, we cannot make sense of the world. Now, I know when I make that statement, that may be hard for someone here to understand. Uh, That someone here may question the Bible's authority uh, over your life. And uh, you may be saying to yourself, come on, Tyler, get with the times. Uh, But I just ask that you'd stick with me. There's this Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor Uh, And he says, 500 years ago in Western culture, uh, we lived in what was called the age of authority. Uh, There were sovereigns, there were kings, there were were rulers over us, and they weren't put there uh, to be uh, elected and represented as a, a representative of the people. They were there. They were the sovereign. They were the king. You knew who you answered to. It was an age of authority. And, and, And what Charles Taylor says now is that we Uh, in Western culture, particularly in America, live in what he calls the age of authenticity. 
No outside controls to govern my life. I must be true to myself. I must express who I really am. That is what is my governing authority. And you may be here this morning and I don't need Charles Taylor to prove this to you. You just need to listen to that amazing singer, artist herself, known as Elsa from the Dizzy Moody Frozen. And the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Now, please don't start singing. (laughs) And I pray that song does not get stuck in your head the rest of the day. But this is exactly what Taylor calls the age of authenticity. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. But what Taylor is telling us and what many other even atheist philosophers from Nietzsche to Terry Eagleton to Thomas Nagel and many more is that removing the law does not bring freedom. It only exposes we have no grounds for logic, morals, justice, values, and freedom itself. As the Russian writer Dostoevsky said, without God and the law, everything is permitted. Jesus is telling us you cannot do away with this law. You need it to make sense of the world. You need it to think, to know what God requires of you. You see, God gave this law to us to be a blessing to you and me, to give us peace and flourishing. In fact, this is what it says in Isaiah 48. It says this, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea. God says, I've given you a way to life a way to freedom, a way to joy, a way to this beautiful Hebrew word peace, which is shalom, a way to wholeness. God says, I've given you a way to the life you have been looking for. But because of this age of authenticity, we have moved on from that to no rules for me. I am free. Let it go. But the reality is, as much as we say, I am free, that deep down we know there is a law that is governing our lives. Where do we see that? Well, right here in this passage, this leads us to the second statement Jesus declares. It's the law that won't go away. The law that won't go away. It says this in verse 18. For for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from this law until all has been accomplished. Jesus gets very specific about this law and the preciseness of this law. Notice he says an iota, which in Hebrew is the Hebrew letter yod. Uh, It looks very much like the apostrophe in English. Not even a letter much bigger than a mark will pass away. Jesus then references the dot, which is called the Hebrew seraph. It is this little line 
at the end of the Hebrew letter, right at the foot of the letter, Jesus says, the law is so sacred that not even the smallest detail will disappear. And this is what we know, whether we acknowledge it or not, there is a law over our life that will not go away. In fact, David Zoll, who wrote a book recently, said, even though we find that Americans are attending church less than they were 30 years ago, uh, he, he says, we have not done away with religion. We are now just looking for a new justifying story. Uh, he writes this, our religion, our religion is that which we rely on, not just for meaning or hope, but enoughness. Our religion is that which we rely on for not just meaning or hope, but for enoughness. We are looking for enoughness. We are, we are looking for this old Bible word, righteousness. How do I know I'm enough? How, how, do I, how do I measure up? And I think the classic picture of where we see this uh, is in the movie Snow White, which you know, I, in the entire time I have ever been preaching sermons, I have never once used one Disney illustration ever. <laughs> and you get two of them in one sermon, which if you can't tell already, uh, my family and I, we purchased Disney plus. So, but in the movie, in the movie of Snow White, the, there, there's this iconic line where, where the queen stands before this mirror and, and she says what? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the, who is the fairest of them all? And the queen asks daily for years and the answer is always the queen. You, my queen, you are the fairest. But one day the queen asks and the mirror says, there is someone better. You are not enough. And the reality is we all experience the mirror. It is this law that won't go away. Uh, in fact, this past November, uh, actually November 18th, uh, I celebrated my birthday in case you're taking notes. It was a good day. I, I turned 38 and I have noticed recently I, I've had a lot of compliments coming my way, uh, but they're not compliments for me. They're, they're compliments about my wife, Rachel. Oh, Rachel, she's so beautiful. Oh, Rachel, she doesn't age on and on and on. And I sit there and I'm waiting for them to catch their breath, hoping that once they've done so, they would have something to say to me. And then nothing comes. <laughs> Except that they finally get to a point where they say, well, you know, Tyler, at least you have a good bald head. <laughs> you see, in this moment of gushing praise, for Rachel and my own insecurity in that moment, I experience in some small way, the mirror. And some of us, we experience that mirror when we have family get togethers or it's the conversation at school or it's that work conference we went to, or it's that casual hangout with a friend. And in those conversations, we find ourselves saying in our heads as they, whoever they are, as they share how amazing their life is going, we think in our heads, wow, 
their life is going really well. Things are really working out for them. And through clenched teeth, we respond with, wow, I am so happy for you. I'm so glad everything is going so perfectly for you. But for many of us, the mirror is killing us. In her book, What Made Maddie Run, Kate Fagan unpacks the story of a popular and talented freshman track star at the prestigious Ivy League Penn University named Maddie, who for all appearances looked to have everything going for her until she took her own life. And the even more difficult thing with, with Maddie was that she was one of six suicide deaths in one year at Penn University. The school began to investigate the pressure that students were under, and they coined a phrase, pen face, P-E-N-N face, pen face. It was the practice of acting happy or self-assured, even when you were sad or stressed. And a similar study was done at Stanford University, and they called it duck syndrome. The duck appears to glide calmly across the water while beneath the surface they frantically paddle. Penn University cited in their report, there is, quote, a perception that one has to be perfect in every academic and social endeavor. And the reality is we all know the pen face. We all are looking for enoughness. We all know, as one writer has said, life is long on law and short on grace. And you can tell what is the mirror in your life by what worries you. Are you worried that someone you love might leave or the career that you have will be taken away? You see, whatever frightens you that you feel you might lose or the thing that you might not achieve, that is for you the law that won't go away. That is where you are looking for enoughness. It could be your family. It could be your job. It could be your looks. Even right now, at some level inside of me, I am wondering, how is this sermon going? Who is asleep? Is it going okay? It could be the right school, the right spouse, the right life. The law won't go away. You see, the mirror is always judging us. There's this common phrase, uh, to err is what? To err is, to err is human. Nobody believes that. Nobody believes that. When someone cuts you in line at a store or cuts in front of you while you are driving, which I can say, having driven in Orlando these past couple days, <laughs> is a common occurrence. When someone cuts in front of you, no one says, hey, friend, no worries. Two air is human. We have all been in a car when someone else was driving or we've been behind the wheel ourselves and we have never uttered the words to err as human. We have uttered other words. We all know there is a standard and a law that won't 
go away. The prophet Isaiah tells us that God's law was supposed to be a resting place for his people amidst their weariness, but instead the law became just a list of rules for which they could never measure up. It says this in the book of Isaiah. So then the word of the Lord will to them become, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that. So this morning, the questions are, if we know the law judges us and we have fallen short, how will we ever get this enoughness that we are looking for? And if we know the law won't go away, how will we ever get the hope we long for? How do we, as one song declares, ever get out of this prison cell? Well, that brings us to Jesus's last point. The law that is fulfilled. Jesus tells this crowd that has gathered on the hillside, I have come not to abolish the law. But notice he doesn't say, I've not come to abolish the law to, to do away with it, but now I've come to keep it going. He does not say that. He says he has come to fulfill it. You see, for you and for me, there is a fulfillment that we need that happens outside of us. You see, Jesus did not come just to simply die on a cross. He came to live the life under the law that we could not live. The life of perfection, the life of enoughness. In fact, the apostle Paul, he he wrote to this church who was struggling with this very issue, struggling with their enoughness. And he wrote to them these words. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that he might receive adoption to sonship. Jesus came to set us free from our need to measure up, from our need to be approved, from our fretting and striving and worrying and comparing. There's this great scene in the movie, O Brother, Where Art Thou? If you've ever seen the movie, you may recall this scene. There's a character played by Tim Blake Nelson. He, he goes into the water to be baptized. And, and, and in this movie, uh, he, he, he gets in the water. Uh, he comes up out of the water and he tells the two other criminals that he's on the run with that he has been redeemed. And they are shocked. They can't believe it. So Nelson's character comes up out of the water and he, he declares, well, that's it, boys. I've been redeemed. My sins have been washed away including that Piggly Wiggly I knocked over in Yazoo City. And if you have no idea what a Piggly Wiggly is, I'm sorry, first of all. And secondly, it's a grocery store. And George Clooney's character, who's hearing this, uh, he's perplexed and he responds. He says, wait, I thought you were framed for that. To which Nelson answered, well, I was lying, but the Lord washed that away too. But here's where Nelson's character misses it. Later in the movie, uh, there's a scene where Nelson begins to talk about why he got baptized. And, And he says, my sins have been washed away. I now have a second chance. So I need to live a good life. And I would say for most Christians, that is their view of the gospel. Jesus died for me. 
He wiped away my sins that I owed, including that Piggly Wiggly in Yazoo City. But now, but now I have a second chance and I need to get to work. And friends, this morning, the gospel is infinitely better than that. Infinitely better than that. When you put your trust in Jesus, his perfect life under the law that you could not live becomes your enoughness. You are declared righteous. It is what Martin Luther, the great reformer, called the glorious exchange. When we give up our running and striving and desperately looking in the mirror, God provides all the righteousness we need in his son. The letter to the book of uh, the letter to Romans in the Bible, it tells us this. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Through one man's disobedience, that is Adam. And through one man's obedience, that is Jesus. We have received the righteousness and the enoughness that we are all desperately looking for. In fact, uh, Pastor Tim Keller says it this way. We don't need a second chance. What we need is a second Adam. We needed someone who would come in our place to give us the righteousness we are all looking for in a thousand other places. This morning, don't you see the approval you need from whatever is in the mirror you already have in Jesus? Don't you see the enoughness you are looking for? It has already been taken care of. Don't you see the fretting and worrying and comparing is not needed anymore because the thing that you are looking for, you have already got in Jesus. There's a psychiatrist named Dr. Carl Menninger. He was part of the Menninger Clinic uh, that started in the 1920s in Kansas. Uh, And Carl Menninger said that he could empty 70% of the beds in his psychiatric ward if he could convince his patients of four words. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. We have been carrying deep burdens of not measuring up, of falling short, of never being able to get over what has happened. This morning, friends, your sins are forgiven. Christ has fulfilled everything that we could not. And if you called me to be your next lead pastor, this is part of my heart and my vision to lead you, to lead you simply to Jesus, to see the beauty of the gospel, to see the rest you're looking for, the approval that you need, the loneliness that you feel, all that you are longing for in Jesus, everything you are looking for has already been fulfilled. Second, once we begin to see the law is fulfilled by Jesus for us, then the law will begin to be fulfilled by Jesus in us. What do I mean? Jesus tells us from our passage at the very end, verse 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
You see, the problem with the religious leaders of Jesus's day was that they tried to keep the law by keeping the law. Uh, it was a mere external exercise. And T.S. Eliot, uh, the great poet, said it this way, uh, the last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right deed for the wrong reason. But Jesus tells us through his gospel, through his power, you will be transformed from the inside. I remember when Rachel and I were buying our house that we currently live in, and we had this final walkthrough uh, with our realtor and the previous owners, and the house is completely cleared out. It's, it's, a, it's a blank canvas for us to imagine our lives and, and where we're going to put our things in this house, and we're there with our realtor, and we're there with the previous owners, and imagine the scene if, as we're doing this walkthrough, the previous owners are, are speaking to us and saying, oh, oh, um, and, and, and right there, right there, that's where the sofa goes. And, 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 and right, right here, right, right here, uh, that's where uh, this desk goes. Oh, and, and in this room, uh, the kid's bed, it goes up against the wall just like this. And at what point during that walkthrough would you say to the previous owners, thank you, I appreciate your advice, but you no longer live here. And the reality is, friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, he is the new owner. And we must allow him the right to rearrange our lives as he sees fit. Jesus gets to move the furniture around in our souls. He gets to decorate as he wills. And but this morning, you will have to hand over the keys you will have to say to Jesus, take up residence in my life. Move the furniture where you will. Discard what you have to. Open the windows if you want to. The house is now yours. If you have never put your trust and confidence in Jesus, the Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. As one song said recently, what if it is time to let the old ways die? What if it is time to let the old ways die? When we acknowledge our need for God, that we cannot live in our own strength, with our own plans, that the law continues to judge us, God declares through the work of his son that you are forgiven and you have received all the righteousness you need. Today, would you pray, God, I put my trust in Jesus, his enoughness for me, my sin for his righteousness, the glorious exchange. If you're here and you've wandered away from God or in your life, he feels distant to you. Maybe today you would pray, God, take up residence in my life. Make your home in me so that I can become the kind of person 
who lives in your kingdom with you. In closing, friends, may we receive Jesus's invitation this morning to follow him once again, wherever you are and wherever he may lead you. As he gives us his invitation this morning from Matthew's gospel. Are you tired? Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. And you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. And work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Let's pray. And so, Father in heaven, this morning, we are so thankful once again for the gospel that we have. Your enoughness for us, your righteousness for us, the law that is fulfilled. And so this morning, for those of us who do not know you, God, would you press upon our hearts your amazing love for us. For those of us who feel distant to you this morning, may we open our hearts to you and hand over the keys that you would come and take up residence and make our house your home. Father, we give you the glory and we receive the joy this morning as your church. And it's in your name we do pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen.